0: good to be here today. It is good to gather in God's house. It is good to uh, know that we can begin to get a little bit more back toward normal every week. So thanks to everybody that's here. Thanks to everybody that's been listening. Um, just a couple of announcements as we begin. Um, thank you to everybody who's been helping out uh, throughout this uh, here at the church. I do appreciate that. And then also um Women of the church has their monthly meeting this Tuesday night at um, Tuesday evening. Is that right? Seven o'clock down in the fellowship hall. So please um, uh, take part in that. Are there any other announcements today? If not, our call to worship comes from Psalm 92 verses one and two. We are going to um, spend the month of June looking at uh, Psalm 92 as our call to worship. And we will hope we will be singing Bible song 188 each week and working our way through the different sections of Psalm 91. Excuse me. Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is a very well-known psalm within the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, probably second to Psalm 133. And Bible Song 188 is probably second to 26 in the back, as far as being known and being sung within the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. Um, It's a psalm that reminds us of God's protection. It's a psalm that reminds us that no matter what happens to us in this world, we have a hope beyond this world and that God is sovereign over all things. And so today our call to worship comes from Psalm Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for these words, for these reminders, that for whoever dwells in your shelter, we will find rest in your shadow. Or the the Psalm 121 tells us that the sun will not strike us by day, that the evils of daytime will not strike us as we are in your presence, nor will the evils of the evening, the evils of the night. We can say with those who have dwelt with you in the past and those who will dwell, dwell with you in the future, that you are our refuge and our fortress. You are the God in whom we trust Because we trust in you, because we know you well enough to know that you are trustworthy, we can rest in your presence. We can rest in the midst of our difficulty and we can come apart from our world and be here in this place to worship you. We are here today for that very thing. May you be honored. May you be glorified by the worship that we offer Our worship will come to you in many forms and now specifically it comes to you in the form of the prayer that you have taught us. Our Father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So please take Bible songs, the green book there before you in the pew, and turn to number 188, Under His Wings. We dwell safely in the refuge of our God. So let us stand and sing Bible song 188, Under His Wings. We are called to confess our sins before God. We are told that that he is merciful to those who come to him and confess. So let us bow our heads and pray. Father of mercy, for Jesus' sake, we plead with you to hear us. We are sinful in our closest walk with you. And it is only by your mercy that we continue to breathe and live. Your grace has given us faith in the cross by which we are reconciled to you and brought into your great love. Though we stand before you as guilty sinners, you have reckoned us innocent in Christ. Like the unmerciful servant in the parable, we are grateful for your kindness to us. Yet we find it difficult to extend that same mercy and kindness to others. Father, forgive us. Thank you that Christ has been merciful to us and for us so that now we are clothed in his beautiful righteousness. Father, we are not pure. Our minds are full of self-exalting, angry, and bitter thoughts. Our lips are impure, and we have sinned often with our bodies. Thank you for the purity of your Son that adorns us each day of our lives. Father, we are not humble. We love to exalt ourselves and enjoy the praise and admiration of those around us. Father, forgive us for our relentless, powerful pride and self-worship. Thank you for the humility of your son who became a servant, enduring deep humiliation and pain to rescue arrogant sinners like us. Thank you for giving us his obedience and counting us humble in him. Giver of all graces, we look to you to maintain them in us. For it is hard for us to practice what we believe. Strengthen us against temptation For our hearts are unexhausted fountains of sin, rivers of corruption since our earliest days, flowing out in all our patterns of behavior. You alone can hold back our evil ways, and without your grace to uphold us, we will surely fall. Keep us aware of our weakness and dependence upon you for strength. Let every trial teach us more of your holiness, peace, and love. Holy Spirit, we cannot grow or persevere in grace unless you work continually in us. Teach us to walk in humble dependence upon you. And may Jesus Christ be exalted in our minds and in our hearts. Let us see him in all his glory, worshipped by angels and archangels, adorned by those he has redeemed. And make us deeply grateful that the mighty Prince of Peace has loved us and rescued us. Amen. Hear these words of assurance from Philippians 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Amen. Our New Testament reading today comes from the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheep being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord, nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice broke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon, who was called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord said. John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. The grass withers, the flowers fail, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Our offering plates are here in the front or there by the back door, or you may continue to mail in your tithes and offerings. God has commanded us to support his work within uh, our country, within our state, our cities, and even around the world. And so I thank you to everybody who has continued to support us during this difficult time. Father above, we do give glory, honor, and praise to you. And we ask that you be glorified by what we give, that it may be pleasing worship to you, that you may know our gratitude, that you may know our love for you as we are obedient in giving of tithes and offerings. Thank you for all that you have provided. Thank you for this opportunity for worship. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please remain standing and take your hymn book. It is hymn number 105, How Gentle God's Commands. We oftentimes think of God's commands as harsh, but as Moses said in the book of Deuteronomy, they are easy and they are gentle. So let us remain standing and sing hymn number 105, How Gentle God's Commands.
1: let yeah. yeah.
0: With the saints who have come before, the saints who will follow after us in proclaiming what it is that we believe. Spacebar. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So we have any prayer requests today? I think it's really important right now that we be lifting our country up in prayer just so many things going on between this virus, between the civil unrest, the election that's coming up. And so we need to be reminded that Jesus is ruling, that God is sovereign, and that none of this is surprising him as much as it's surprising us. Any other prayer requests? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God and Father, we do thank you for the fact that you hear us as we stand here in our world, as we seek to live our lives, sometimes thinking we have control, sometimes realizing we should repent of the control we think we have. We ask that you remind us that you are the one who is sovereign. You are the one who rules. And as the nations make their plans, as the nations Rage against you. You sit in heaven and you laugh. Knowing that you are the sovereign God, that you can raise up leaders, that you tear down leaders. Moment by moment, day by day, nobody leads except apart from your sovereign gift of authority. Our elected officials, whether they are local, whether they are state, whether they are national, are there. According to your goodwill. Help them remember that. Help them remember that they are agents of your law. That they are in place to restrain evil. Help them remember not to overstep their bounds when it comes to the passing of laws. Help them remember to seek to govern according to your wisdom. As revealed in your world through natural law and as revealed in your word through your law. Lord, help them to be humble leaders. Help them remember that in our context, they represent not just themselves, but the people that elected them. Help them to make decisions that protect the prayers and the worship of your people. And Lord, help us to remember things as well. Help us to remember to pray for our leaders, our local leaders who are making decisions about things that we take for granted, roads and water and electricity, ordinances, permits. Lord, give them wisdom as they deliberate over those things. For our state leaders, Or there's overlap there, but there are many other things that our state leaders deal with, whether it's um, opening up following a lockdown after pandemic, whether it's seeking to allocate resources for schools, whatever responsibilities they have, help us to pray for them in those responsibilities. Many of those are weighty responsibilities. Help them to help us to pray for those responsibilities on a regular basis. Help us to pray for our national leaders. Lord, as there is unrest over our nation, as there is fear over a virus, and our political leaders are seeking to make decisions to guide us through these difficult times, We help us lift them up in prayer. Help us to remember the weight of responsibility that we have given to them in electing them. Help us to seek their well-being in our prayers before you. Lord, all of these officials help us to give them the honor and the respect that is due to someone that you have raised up to a place of authority. Help us to remember that in your sovereignty, you place these men and women In places of political power. They are your instruments. Help us to remember that and treat them with the respect that you call us to. Help us to be understanding. In our interactions with them, help us to be to understand our responsibility to them, to continue to communicate with them. Your law, your gospel, your requirements for them as elected leaders. Lord, be with our government. Turn the hearts of our elected officials, our appointed officials toward you, toward your wisdom, toward your gospel. So that we might have peace as your people to gather, to worship, to pray, to sing, to hear the preaching and teaching of the word. So that we might have the peace and the freedom to be your people. Lord, I also lift up the unrest that's in our world right now. There are so many things that have, that cause this sense of dis-ease within our world, and yet they all boil down to the fact that our world denies. That at heart, we are sinners. And we seek to worship ourselves above all things. We find Or we think we find within our own intelligence the solutions to the problems of the world. Remind us that the solution to the problems of the world came through the cross. Came through changed hearts by the Holy Spirit. Remind us that as we take stands where we feel we need to take stands. Remind us that it is ultimately the gospel that changes people. Remind us that it is ultimately the gospel that proclaims our equality as your image. And remind us that it is the gospel that is the hope that we have in this chaotic world. Lord, thank you for that gospel. Thank you for the message of salvation that is given to us through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And apply to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so it is in the name of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray to you, God, our Father. Amen. But please turn with me. uh, Today we'll be in various um, scriptures. Uh, But we're going to start out in Luke chapter 10. And so please turn with me. Um, To Luke chapter 10, we're going to take at least one week, maybe two weeks off of the book of Proverbs. It may even be three weeks. Who knows? Um, uh, Just to look at a couple issues that I think are important for us to consider in light of our world today. Um, Today, we're going to look at at, uh, one of the underlying causes of a lot of the unrest that's happening in our country right now. And I know we have all different um, views on that, and I'm not going to deal with any specific issue out of the news. I want to give us kind of a, a a bird's eye view of race and race relations um, within our world and also within our church. Um, please understand, I I try my best not to preach what news agencies and the culture tells me to preach. But after talking about this with some uh, some friends and uh, a very, very close friend that I deeply respect, um, I came to the conclusion that the Holy Spirit just asked me to address this this week. It's not the first time I've addressed this. We covered it when we looked at Genesis 1, which we'll look at Genesis 1 again today. As we look through Genesis, as John 12, through Jonah 4, through Ephesians 4. It's something we've dealt with before, but um, I kind of want to pull it out of... A a particular context and look at it as an issue in its own And so hopefully this discussion today will be beneficial for all of us It has been beneficial for me this week as we study But more importantly than being a benefit I hope and pray that each of us will either begin to see Or to see again The importance of the gospel for the heart of the individual And for the health of a society So as we think about those things let us pray Our Lord and Father above, I do come before you today seeking your words, seeking your spirit. If I were to come into this pulpit in my own power, um, I might as well go on a TED Talk circuit or something like that. But I am not here merely to share information. I am here because you have called me to preach and to speak words that will change lives, not by my power, but by yours. As I stumble over my words, I falter over my thoughts, I misspeak. And yet, as a broken vessel trying to carry a glorious message, you shine through the cracks and you bring your people closer to you. And so I pray that prayer today, Lord, as I seek to carry your glorious message, draw your people closer to you so that we might know you better, so that we might love you better. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So in his article, Tabithi's top 10 tips for talking about race, Tabidi Anyabwile's first tip is don't talk about race. Now, I know I'm breaking his first tip right out of the box, but not really, according to the rest of the article. Um, our, our modern idea of race as a biological category is one that really has no basis Scientifically or biblically, biologically, on the level of genetics, there is zero difference between me or somebody who can trace their lineage to Africa or to Europe or to Asia or to South America. When the Bible talks about different tribes, different nations, different tongues, underneath all of them is the idea, which we'll cover here in a few minutes, that. That underneath all of those, those people who have different ethnicities, different languages, are all considered to be the image of God. And Anja Wile goes on to talk and to argue that most of what we talk about as race issues can be dealt with in other categories found within the scripture. So that is what I'm going to attempt to do today. I'm going to look at three different categories. That we can use as we handle our own hearts when it comes to thinking about race relations. The first thing we'll look at will be from Luke 10, 25 through 37. We'll seek to answer the question: who is my neighbor? We will look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 and consider what is the image of God. And then we will look at Genesis, or excuse me, Galatians uh, chapter two and a portion from chapter three as well to see that we are one in Christ. So I'm going to ask my helper. I actually have one for each point. So if you will go ahead and hit the space bar for me there. So first, we're going to look at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37 to answer the question, who is my neighbor? So here are these words. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, Do this, and you will live. But he, the expert in the law, wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So as a test, this teacher of the law comes to Jesus and asks, what are the requirements for eternal life? And Jesus, as he often did, he answered a question with a question. And he says, what does the law teach you? And this expert in the law gave a summary of the law that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus 19. This two-part summary of the law that Jesus has used in the, in, when he was asked by another religious leader, you know, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus gave the same answer this, this man gave here. And it can boil down to two very short two-word commands. Love God and love neighbor. That is the greatest commandment is to love those two things. Now, when we look at the Ten Commandments, when we look at the law of God, do we think about love? Do we think about them in the context that they are expressions of love? What does Jesus say in John? If you love me, you will show up at church on Sunday. If you love me, you'll tithe regularly. If you love me, you'll give a bottle of water to the homeless guy who's, who's hanging out there at the, uh, the traffic light. No, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and the commandments. If we were to look at the Ten Commandments, we'll see that they break down along the lines of these two summary commandments. Love God and love neighbor. The first four commandments deal with how we relate or how we love God. We're not to have any other gods. We're not to worship idols. We are to respect his name and we are to respect the rest that we is, he, that he has given to us. We love God by honoring him above all other things. The next six commandments teach us how to relate to our fellow human beings, how to love our fellow human beings, honor our parents and ultimately all authority. Don't murder, respect marriage, respect private property. Don't lie about other people and don't covet other people's stuff. So when Jesus gives his answer, When Jesus says that all of the law is important in the sense that the law teaches us to love God and to love neighbor. This expert in the law, as we are told, seeks to justify himself. Now, why would he want to justify himself? Well, he's asking here about eternal life. And I think that inside he probably knew that he failed in one or both of these areas loving God and loving neighbor. But the Israelites had put boundaries around what a neighbor was. A neighbor was somebody that lived within the physical boundaries of the nation of Israel and could trace their lineage all the way back to the founding fathers of the nation, to the patriarchs. They were full-blooded Israelites who lived within the nation of Israel, were considered to be their neighbor. And so he's trying to figure out how within that definition. He can justify himself in loving his neighbor. So what does Jesus do with that definition of neighbor? He turns it on his head, does he not? As he gives this this parable of this man who's on a journey, he's beaten and left for dead. And two of the most respected people within the nation of Israel pass by on the other side. And yet the Samaritan had the audacity to stop and help the man out. Why was this shocking to the expert in the law? It's because Samaritans were not full-blooded Israelites. And even though the land of Samaria kind of fell near to within the boundaries of the nation of Israel, they were considered to be outside of the physical boundaries of the nation of Israel, so much so that if a if a full blooded Israelite were going to walk from Jerusalem to Galilee, they would cross the Jordan River until they got north of the land of Samaria, and then they'd cross back over into the land of Galilee, in the land of Nazareth, and in that area. Because they just were not going to be around, be near the Samaritans. And yet it is the hated party that shows grace. And what Jesus is seeking to do here, this is not a salvation parable. This is an answer to the question, who is my neighbor? A neighbor is anybody that shares humanity with you, with me, with us, is what he's saying here. The one who was expected to be the least neighborly to the injured Israelite is the one who actually was treating him most like a neighbor. And what we learn here is that we are called to love anyone who shares humanity with us. We are called to love our neighbors. Now, how are we doing? on truly loving our neighbors? Are there people out there that you feel don't deserve your love, your care, your compassion because of, I don't know, maybe the area of the world they were born in? Or they can trace their descendants to? Or maybe it's the language that they speak? Or maybe it's the way they vote? How many of us have drawn lines in relationships? How many of us have drawn lines In the area of neighborliness. Where they are not to be drawn. Who is your neighbor? Everybody is our neighbor because we share the foundation of our of our identity with every other human being. And that is found in Genesis chapter one. Beginning in verse twenty six. Then God said, we're in the sixth day. This is the last day of creation before the day of rest. God has created the earth. He has filled it with everything except for the crown of glory, the crown of honor of creation. And he does that beginning in verse 26 says, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth And over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then he goes on in verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. These opening words in verse 26... Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Are a reality, are a truth about every human being that has ever been born. Images in this time would have been something that a king would place in a town square, especially a town that might be far away from the area in which his capital city was. To remind the people of that town, to remind everybody that came through the center of town, that there was a king who ruled over them. Brothers and sisters, every single human being is a reminder that there is a glorious, sovereign king who rules over the earth. So when you look at the person across the aisle from you, or you pass somebody in a car, or you walk past somebody in a grocery store, and you see them as another human being, you know what you're to think about? God. God. And his sovereignty, because every single human being should be a reminder to you. Of God's glory, of God's honor and God's dignity. And it doesn't matter what that person looks like. It doesn't matter how able that person is. It doesn't matter what language they speak. They are still the image of God and a reminder to each and every one of us of his glory. Of his majesty. And that gives. Every single human being. Dignity. And respect. Or it should. Because every single human being. Is an image of God. We are not just the next. Accidental animal step. In an evolutionary process. Each and every one of us. Was carefully. Crafted and formed by God and with the dignity that we deserve because we are the image of God. And oftentimes, we as humans, because sin has entered the world, we deny that image in other people. We seek to find ways to lessen that image, to lessen that glory, to lessen that dignity. To destroy it sometimes simply because they are different than you and I. You know what category the scripture puts that in? Murder. Whenever we seek to destroy the image of God in another human being or seek to deny the image of God in another human being, we are guilty of murder. The larger larger catechism, question 136, says what particular sins does the sixth commandment forbid it's a long answer. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it includes withholding the necessary means for the preservation of life. It includes hatred. It includes sinful anger. It includes oppression and it includes anything else conducive to the destruction of anybody's life. And life is not merely a biological process. Life is. Is the quality of what we live. Not in a medical term, but in a biblical term. In a biblical sense. Life is that sense of fullness that we have, and anything we do to take that sense of fullness or deny it to another human being within the bounds of God's law, we are guilty of murder. When we deny the image of God and a fellow human being simply because they are different from us, we are guilty of violating that sixth commandment. We are guilty of not loving our neighbor. We are guilty of not loving God. As I said, we were all created in the image of God. And yet Genesis three happened. It would be so nice if the history of humanity ended at the end of Genesis two, but it doesn't. Genesis three happened and humanity and their sinfulness gathered together on the plain of Shinar and sought to become gods themselves. And so to rein in or to restrain sin, God confused our languages, set up divisions among humanity based upon language so that we would not be as sinful as we possibly could be together. And we even took that grace And have twisted it. And yet we have the gift of Babel being reversed. We see that in Acts chapter 2. As the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles, as they are proclaiming the gospel, people of many different tongues, many different languages can hear the gospel in their own language. And Peter was the one there proclaiming powerfully. That message in the midst of the reunification of Babel. And Peter even had that experience of the dream that God gave him when he was in Joppa. And he took the gospel to Cornelius's household. And he saw the Holy Spirit's work in Cornelius's life, in the life of his household. And knew for a fact that the gospel had come to the Gentiles, in fact, celebrated it. And then we get to Galatians chapter two, beginning in verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Peter has had this wonderful vision of what can happen when the gospel reaches a new people group. And apparently within a very short period of time, after fellowshipping with Gentiles, after tasting the sweet joy of fellowship, of reunited humanity, a group comes who it says they're from James, but likely they did not come with James blessing. But they come preaching that you have to add the law to the gospel in order to truly be a Christian. And does Peter stand up for the truth of the gospel, that it reunites apart from the law? No. Through his fellowship, through his example, he abandons the Gentiles and goes back to his Jewish roots. And Paul says he had to confront Peter for the hypocrisy that was there. And why did he confront Peter? Pick up again in verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? How was Peter forcing the Gentiles to follow the Jewish customs? Simply by his example. He was so well respected within the church that people started doing what he did simply because he did it. And they thought, well, if Peter's doing it, well, then maybe I should, too. Maybe I have to also. In verse 15, we're going on. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. uh, That's in quotes, hopefully within your scripture there, because um, just like the Jews view the Samaritans. They viewed Gentiles as well. Anybody who didn't keep the law was considered to be sinners. The law only came to the Israelites. It didn't go to the Gentiles. So they were by their very nature sinners. They were by their very nature less than something that God could take pleasure in. Just because they were Gentiles. So we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law. But by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Underneath that foundational identity of image of God, there are two other images. Two other foundations, excuse me, two other identities that God considers when he looks at humanity, Paul Puts them in the categories in Romans chapter 5 of in Adam or in Christ. We stand before God, each and every one of us, we stand before God before salvation in Adam. Which means we stand before God condemned. Every single human being. We stand before God condemned for our sins. Because we are in Adam. We have Adam's nature. We are in a sense, in Adam's likeness, in that we seek our own will above God's. But Paul says, through faith, we are justified. We are declared righteous because of the work of Jesus. And we are then moved from the category of in Adam to the category of in Christ. Which means we are sons of God. Rebels and slaves to sin through the work of Christ are made to be sons of God. And when he looks at redeemed humanity, God sees glorious, righteous sons of God, daughters of God. And that has implications that we see at the end of chapter 3, beginning in verse 26. You, those who are justified through faith, are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are all in Christ instead of in Adam. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. You have put on his righteousness. You have put on his glory. You have put on his acceptance before God. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. When God looks... At a human being. He sees that human being as he created him, as he formed him with his distinctions, with his nose, with his hair, with his skin color, with his language. But more importantly, he sees either in Adam or in Christ. Before God, even though he sees those distinctions, they don't matter. Ethnic distinctions, economic distinctions, Distinctions between male and female, while they are real, while they, do, while they do not disappear, when we stand before God, it doesn't matter. He looks at us as either in Adam or in Christ. And because of that, because of the truth of the gospel, we are called not to be respecters of persons. There is no criteria by which we may look at another human being, especially a redeemed human being. And say, well, I'm better than you or you're lower, lesser than me. We violate, we deny the gospel when we say that. Because this is where the gospel leads us, which is in Revelation chapter seven. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people and every language standing before the throne and in front of the lamb. They, people from every tribe, people, language and nation, they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. It goes on in verse 12, says they continue singing, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. It's a picture of the heavenly worship. It's the picture of what worship is going to look like in the new heavens and the new earth. And while I 100% affirm that you won't have these feelings when you get to the new heavens and the new earth, I want you to ask yourself a question real quick. Who, what people group, what tribe, what nation, what language will you be disappointed to see in heaven and think they shouldn't be there? Just let that sit on you for just a minute. Because within the church, if we carry within our heart discrimination against another people group or another political party or anybody else that we look at and say, you are something less than the image of God, we are denying the worship that is ours because we are reconciled to God. We are denying the path on which humanity is walking toward the new heavens and the new earth, especially redeemed humanity. We deny the gospel when we look at somebody as less than human. Who is my neighbor? Do I view them as the image of God? And within the church, do I view them as sons and daughters of God? In light of all that, what are some things that you and I can do? Well, first off, I think we should all repent. Now, I know there are national and cultural calls for us to repent of things that we never had our hands in. Tabidi Anubwile in that article says, you know, it may be sad that your grandparents own slaves, but as long as you don't, there's no reason for you to repent of that. But these moments are like the moments in Luke 18, where these people are 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 weeping, are wondering what happened to these men who were sacrificed along with unclean animals by Pilate. And Jesus says, don't look at their life to see what they did wrong. Search your own heart to see where you need to repent. Repent. Do you need to ask God for forgiveness for attitudes within your heart that violate his image or his gospel? Do you need to track somebody down from youth? I remember it was a it was a he's a man now. He was a boy at the time, but the African-American person that I went to school with that I was hateful to. I wasn't necessarily hateful to him because of any particular thing about him. I just didn't like him. And I said horrible things to this African-American man. I wish I could find him. I wish I could go Livingston. Man, there's nothing I can say to make what I said right. But will you forgive me anyway? I, I can't find him. But I wish I could. Second, get to know somebody who's different from you. This may start with spending time with somebody who votes differently than you. I know I've picked on race a lot, but I think oftentimes within the conservative church, we conflate conservative theology with conservative politics. Did you know that if you sit down with somebody who votes differently than you do, you may find out they want the same thing you do for this country. They just see a different way of getting there. They want a better place to live. They want a safer place to live. They want better economic opportunities for everybody. They just see a different path to it than you do. But sit down and spend time with another fellow human being who doesn't fit your normal neighbor group. Not because you're trying to earn points for having ethnically diverse friends, but because they are fellow images of God, because they are your neighbor. Third, and this is the last thing I'm going to give you, but it's by no means an exhaustive list. There are so many more things we could do to help out with this. We have to do. We have to start in our own life, though. But the last thing is to speak up. You know, you don't have to go to a protest to show your desire to be a better Christian when it comes to these issues. The sad and sinful reality is that most of us have at best been in the room when demeaning and degrading things have been said about someone of a different nation, a different tribe or different language. At worst, we've taken parts in those things, either laughing at the jokes or telling the jokes or making dehumanizing and hateful comments. The next time you hear something like that, be like Paul. I mean, here's Paul, kind of a brand new apostle. And he's going up against Peter because Peter was wrong. You might lose friends. You might cause difficulty within your family. But, you know, you hear demeaning words about another people group or another language. At least say, you know what, that's not right. At least say, if this is how we're going to talk, I can't stay in this room. At least be willing to stand up and call out sin, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the family room, whether it's out on the trail. See, Jesus promised us a far greater family, a far greater group of friends, both here and in the world to come. It's a diverse family family that oftentimes will not look like you will not look like me will not look like everybody in this room but it's a forgiven family and it's God's family let us pray god i i repent to you for my hateful words i thank you that you've forgiven me I thank you that you have washed clean my sins. And I thank you that you have moved me from being in Adam to being in Christ. Help me look at the world beyond my front door. And see images of God. To see people who have dignity and respect merely for that reason. Help me to treat them as my neighbor. To give of myself to them. To serve them. To love you by loving them. Lord, by the power of the gospel, make them my brothers and sisters. And remind me that many of them are. My brothers and sisters, because we are all called sons and daughters of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our closing hymn comes from hymn number 99. Thy might sets forth the mountains. God has established this world. He has hung it according to his might. So let us stand and sing hymn number 99. Thy might sets forth the mountains. difficult road of the people of God take this blessing upon you the Lord will rescue you from every evil attack and will bring you safely to his heavenly kingdom to him be glory forever and ever amen and we pray quick come quickly Lord Jesus